Resilience is the ability to bounce back and regain emotional balance after encountering stressful or traumatic events or situations. And there is a quote from Carl Jung that I think summarizes this very well. It's, I'm not what has happened to me, I'm what I choose to become. So really resilience is about moving our story forward in a positive way. There's a couple analogies along with the butterfly that I feel um, help to illustrate the meaning, the deeper significance of resilience. One thing that I talk about with clients is um, the difference between a landfill and a garden is basically how we deal with our trash. When we have trash, especially organic matter, after a meal, we can either toss it into the garbage can, and if we do that, it gets buried somewhere far away and piles up and it grows and grows and festers and it smells bad and no one wants to go near it. Alternatively, we can compost it, but composting takes a special type of process and effort to integrate what is seen as trash or waste, to integrate it back into the soil in such a way that it provides more nutrients to the soil and prepares the ground for growing something. And what we grow from there is up to us. It could be vegetables and fruits, it could be a beautiful garden of flowers. So it's about taking our past with, accepting our past and building something in, in the present and in the future. Usually when people get insight from their past, they want to rebuild the past. But we need to be thinking about the insights and the knowledge that comes to us from the pain of the past as another tool for building something in the future. A second analogy that's, that's helpful to me, I heard recently, it's about um, an elephant farm. A visitor came to an elephant farm and saw all these giant elephants um, managed with a small rope tied to a small post in the ground. And he was curious about why these elephants weren't just breaking free. So he asked a trainer and the trainer said, well, we've used these same ropes and posts to control these elephants when they were, when they were small. And at that time it actually was enough to, to uh, contain them and they grow up in this way, ultimately developing the belief that they cannot break free from this rope and this post, so they just stay, stay put. Similarly, when we have past pain or past problems, we feel like it's part of who we are and it defines us in such a way that we can't ever escape that and it creates a certain limitation. And yet we do have the power to break free and that's that's what we're going to talk about today and I'm going to present three strategies for developing this this skill and then we'll conclude with a um, with another perspective that's emerging emerging from new studies um, that that gives an alternative way to approach building resilience so those three strategies are emotional maturity positive attitude and creativity and we'll come to that shortly but I just want to say quickly about how I first got interested in resilience 
I first got interested in resilience as I spent more and more time with my uncle who was a lieutenant in Vietnam. And I learned that Vietnam veterans have a high rate of post-traumatic stress disorder. We actually developed the name post-traumatic stress disorder by studying veterans after Vietnam. And it's estimated that as many as one out of three suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. However, when I spent time with my uncle, I realized that he really wasn't struggling at all in life. He came back after a two-year stint in Vietnam, got married, had a family, was a businessman and was very successful, had three children. They all grew up and became very successful and happy and healthy in their families. So I was very curious about what made it possible for him to adapt to life after the war and also thrive. But I never had the courage as a kid to really talk to him about it. But one day he put out a book and I read his book, his autobiography called Never a Hero, and it gave me a lot more insight. And that insight I've used to develop uh, this, this workshop and to research further. There's one short anecdote from, from this book that I'll share with you that I think illustrates the type of person that he, he was, the type of resilient man that he was. When he got his draft noticed, he was 18 years old, it was at the end of his senior year, and he was enrolled in junior college, a community college, so he applied for deferment. Didn't hear back, called the school, said, I have this notice of for induction to the military, but I don't want to go to the military, I want to come to school. And the school essentially said, well, you have to take that up with the government. So he did, so he wrote another letter and, and asked for deferment, but did not hear back. Eventually the induction day came and he went, it was in Calumet City, and he was enlisted in the army. Then, after his induction, he goes for basic training and has a two-week break before he's going to be deployed to Vietnam. When he comes home, my grandmother, his mother says, Richie, there is a letter for you. It's on the piano. And I didn't open it because it looked very official from the government. So he goes into the living room and grabs the letter off the piano, opens it up. And it essentially says his deferment has been accepted by the government, but he's already been inducted into the military, so it's too late. And he asks his mom, he says, Mom, do you know when this letter came? She says, it came a few hours before you left for the induction. And he felt this overwhelming pressure come over him. And in the book, he wrote that he took a deep breath and he stepped back and then he went over and his mom said, so what is the letter about? He said, oh, it's just about me having enough qualifications to advance my career in the military. And then he kissed his mother and he said that uh, any additional letters that may come from the government, I give you permission to open. And then he went to Vietnam for two years and, uh, and came back and adapted. And I think that that uh, that little story really illustrates the kind of emotional maturity, the kind of positive attitude and creative spirit that he possessed that allowed him to be able to face this, this type of challenge in life and, and overcome it.
So, those three again are emotional maturity, positive attitude, and creativity. The first one, emotional maturity, I would define as the ability to respond to the circumstances of our life in a wise way. And there are a few things to pay attention to here to be, to be aware of. One is that when we are responding with awareness, we're activating what's called the prefrontal cortex in the brain. This is the higher decision-making center. When we're not aware of our emotions and aware of how we're feeling, then other centers, lower centers in the brain involved with pleasure and survival, those centers and those circuits operate our reactions to our circumstances. So what we're talking here about here is reaction versus response. And if we can practice responding as opposed to reacting, we're already building the type of resilience that we'll need to face challenges. So all this takes to develop is having the awareness. And it helps to build awareness even in ordinary circumstances because more than half of everything we do in our daily life is done out of habit and routine. Those actions take place in a part of the brain called the striatum. It's an ancient processing center in the brain that we share with most mammals. But we have a very developed prefrontal cortex and when we are aware of how we're feeling, we can make decisions based on our values. So try to make decisions based on your character, not based on your emotions, and then we'll be building this quality of emotional maturity. However, when we do feel that emotional wave, we can practice a mindfulness technique like deep breathing, and that will help us to come back to a centered and calm place. So it's wise to build the healthy pattern of stepping back from challenges. We are so quick to try to get a change in our environment when we're triggered. For example, we get a text and it says something we don't like and we immediately fire back and instead of resolving the situation, we may complicate it. But even if we can be successful at changing our circumstances and getting what we want to manage our emotions, we actually do ourselves a disservice and that is that we reinforce the belief that something outside of myself has to change before I could be happy again. When we learn to step back and respond based on our values, we recognize that we have the power to stay true to ourselves, and that is the birth of self-empowerment. Secondly, is having an internal locus of control. When people have the strong belief that their circumstances or their past defines them or prevents them from being happy, then it gets us stuck. There's an interesting study that was uh, conducted in the 80s, through the 80s in Hawaii. It's known as the Kauai Longitudinal Study of Resilience. And researchers followed a group of children from before they were born all the way through their third decade, so past 30 years old. And they recorded all kinds of data, everything about their academic careers, their, uh, their careers after school, their health, 
their families, their financial status, their circumstances, their stressors, their triggers, um, their relationships. So all this data was recorded and they found that out of the nearly 700 people that they were studying, that about one-third, nearly, nearly 300 of them, came from what you could describe as at-risk circumstances or adverse childhood experiences, which means there may have been abuse, there may have been severe poverty, other types of dysfunction at school or at home. And out of this group, out of this nearly 300 uh, segment of the, pop, of the population that was studied, two-thirds struggled throughout their life struggled to adapt, struggled to ever bounce back. One third ended up thriving as adults, building health, building success, and having happy lives, including healthy families. So the researchers wanted to know what was unique about that one third within the group of at-risk or people coming from traumatic experiences. And they found basically that there was a protective factor and that was that those people believed that their problems could all be overcome and that it's really up to them to determine how they respond and move forward from their experiences and that they have the power to build the kind of life that they want. So we call this an internal locus of control. And finally, Emotional maturity is enhanced through support and connection. When somebody is going through heartache or, or trouble or some kind of emotional pain, it really leads us to feel like we're all alone in that experience. And that's why connecting with others is important to realize that we're not alone and that we're actually connected in our suffering. It, it actually creates a sense of belonging and wholeness. There's a quote from Helen Keller, walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light, which means once we realize this interconnectedness, it really um, enhances our sense of humanity. There's a story in the life of the Buddha that I'd like to share with you that, uh, that goes deeper into this concept. There was a woman who lost her son and she was grieving, so she came to the, to the Buddha and asked for a miracle. She said, I know you're a holy man, and I have a special request. Can you bring back my son? And he said, I may be able to help you, but I need something from you. And she said, anything. And he said, I need you to bring me some mustard seed from another home in your village. Well, in this part of Asia, everybody has some mustard seeds, so she knows that that won't be any trouble. So she says, I'll get that right away and I'll come back. And as she's leaving, he says, but one thing, the mustard seed has to come from a home where there's no grieving, there's no loss like yours. So she says, okay, I'll, I will get that. And she comes to the first home and man opens the door and she says, may I borrow some mustard seed for a special ceremony? And he says, of course. So he gives her a small container of mustard seed and she thanks him and starts to be on her way. But then she remembers the instruction of the Buddha and, and she asks him, oh, one thing, 
you don't happen to be going through any loss here in your home. And he says, it's funny that you should ask because uh, our son left for a city to go to the city a few months ago and we expected him back many weeks ago and still he has not returned and we've not been able to reach him. So we're starting to, to fear the worst. And the woman thinks about it and she doesn't think that it quite qualifies for the, for the uh, request of the Buddha. So she tells him, thank you, but no thank you. You see, I need to get a mustard seed from a home without loss. And she then explains her story to, to the man and they offer, he offers his condolences, she offers her condolences and she moves on. And like this, as she comes to every home, she realizes that every home in the village has some story to share with her. After hearing everybody's stories and sharing her own, she comes back to the Buddha and says, I was not able to get the mustard seed, but I no longer need you to bring back my son. I now know what I need to do to heal. And in a way, the Buddha created one of the earliest grief and loss groups. So that is a little bit about emotional maturity. Next is a positive attitude. Researcher named Barbara Fredrickson has studied um, the effects of negativity versus positivity on our skills. And essentially what's been found is that when we have a negative attitude or a negative emotion like fear or anger, all we can think about is getting away or getting even. So the scope of our mind is very narrowed. But when we're having a positive experience, we can think of many other things that we could do. So children develop skills in life based on their positive experiences, and this is known as the broaden and build theory. When a child is outside playing, he or she may climb up a tree, play a game with friends, explore nature, and long after the joy of that experience, there are skills that were developed that, that last throughout life, skills like communicating, like developing certain types of coordination. And this leads to new ways of doing things and helps us be able to be more effective in life. But it starts with having a positive experience. And a positive attitude will not come casually. It has to come through a practice. And that primary practice is gratitude, which is a type of awareness that we can practice on a daily basis to build our attitude. Because our attitude essentially comes down to this. It is essentially what we choose to pay attention to. And what we choose to pay attention to builds the brain. There are actually areas of the brain in the memory centers that differentiate between positive and negative. We have to be able to remember negative things to protect ourselves. But when we think about negative things more than positive things, that area of the brain grows through neuroplasticity and we get really good at identifying more and more negativity in our life and we get really good at remembering it. In a study after 9-11, researchers including Barbara Fredrickson found that gratitude was a buffer and factor that protected people from depression in the aftermath of that crisis. One of the leading researchers on gratitude is Robert Emmons. You can find 
uh, lots of information about the science of gratitude by researching his studies. But one, one special one that I'll share with you involves journaling. Now, gratitude journaling to build resilience requires that we write about experiences and not just objects or people as a list. There's a big difference between making a gratitude list and keeping a gratitude journal. In a list, I can rattle off a bunch of things, mom, dad, brother, sister, wife, kids, and not really feel much. But when I gratitude journal about an experience that happened in my day, it requires a lot more contemplation. So if I write, my child drew me a picture and it said, I love you, daddy, I can really feel more. And by writing it and looking at it and reflecting on it, we use more areas of our brain. So when more centers of our brain are communicating with each other, we form new connections and it helps to build a positive attitude. So when people practice this for even one week, it results in a 1% improvement in their life satisfaction. And if they never do it again and are assessed one month later, it's found that their life satisfaction and happiness increases by 9%. And still, if they never do any more gratitude journaling, six months later when they are assessed again, it continues to rise. So the message here is that even in a week or two of doing this kind of practice, we can change our brains in a way that helps build, um, build resilience and prepares us for responding positively to adverse circumstances. And lastly, smile. Smile actually completes a happiness circuit. When we smile, we send certain electrical impulses back to the brain that communicates biologically that we are safe. So there is, there is science to the old adage of grin and bear it. Also, I've read that uh, children smile on average 400 times per day and adults smile on average 20 times per day. So something is changing in a negative way from childhood to adulthood. Even the adults that score high on life uh, satisfaction assessment smile on average 40 times a day. So even our happiest adults are still smiling 10 times less than children. It's a simple Simple practice, smile more. Other studies show that it increases the production of white blood cells. The next is creativity. Art enhances our problem solving skills and this has been studied in a variety of ways. Primarily, it gives a sense of achievement when we complete something creative and it could be a painting, a drawing, um, some type of woodworking or gardening or cooking, but when it's completed, there is a release of dopamine in the brain, which is the pleasure neurotransmitter chemical in the brain. However, there's a difference between merely looking at art and um, creating art as it applies to psychological resilience. The difference is when we're making art, we have to solve problems. And the brain is very metaphorical, it's very symbolic. What does this mean? It means that when I'm solving problems in my artwork, my biology doesn't really differentiate that and life problems. 
when I'm working on a problem in art, it's still a problem. And the more I make decisions and solve those problems, the more I build confidence and the more I create certain pathways in the brain that leave me feeling as though I have done this before. I have solved problems before I can solve them again. And that is the theory behind why art and creativity enhances one's resilience. However, looking at art or appreciating art has its benefit too. It's not been shown to specifically increase psychological resilience, but it does have a stress reduction benefit. And one theory about this is that the mirror neuron system in the brain is one of the sources of empathy. Mirror neurons are thought to be cells in the brain that fire both when we perform an activity or engage in an activity or when we're merely observing it, which leaves the brain and the body feeling as though that is our own experience. That is why we can cry during a movie, why we can feel scared, why we might have nightmares later, why we might feel unsettled. How are all those things possible if we know this is just a story and in most cases it's not even a true story? and it's ultimately just light on a screen. Well, our brains make it so that it is our own experience. But when we're visually appreciating art, cells may be firing in our brain that fired in the artist, forming new connections. And it is thought that intelligence is really not about the size of our brains, but about the connectivity among the centers and cells within the brain. You could think of it like a piano. All the music you could ever want to hear is there within the piano. It's not that a longer and longer piano would make one more musical. We simply have to find newer and newer ways to communicate between the notes. All the melodies are there, but those connections have not all been made yet. And art helps with this on these various levels. There's an Arab proverb, sunshine all the time makes a desert. So I'd like to shift gears and take an alternative perspective to, um, to resilience. And that is about understanding resilience before we would need resilience. With this quote, sunshine all the time makes a desert, we can see that it means that we need some adversity. We need to face challenges in life. There needs to be some pain and some bitterness to balance our humanity, to balance our psychological growth. So we're gonna look at a few things to understand this better. A second definition of resilience is the definition as it applies to a substance, which relates to elasticity or flexibility. So we think of stretching a material like rubber and its ability to come back into shape. Well, flexibility and elasticity are something that we can cultivate long before we would ever be stretched. So new science is supporting that resilience is something that needs to be taught and, and developed before we are even in an adverse circumstance or situation. So, first thing I'd like to share with you is a, an experiment that was done at Oxford University about 10 years ago. It's simply known as the inverted binocular phenomenon, if you want to learn more about it. And researchers did a study with uh, patients suffering from chronic arthritis pain. 
in their arms. And the experiment involved binoculars. And the subjects were asked to observe their arm while doing different types of movement with their arm through both ends of the binoculars for an extended period of time. So looking through the binoculars in the ordinary fashion makes their arms much larger. But looking at the binoculars through the reverse end makes everything look much smaller and far away. And lo and behold, when they recorded their, um, their pain levels through each perspective, they found that when they were looking through the binoculars in the ordinary fashion, their, their pain increased. And when they were looking at their arms through the reverse end, their pain diminished. Now, you may think that there is a placebo effect involved in this. Well, when I'm looking at things far away, I'm supposed to feel the pain less, so maybe they reported less pain. But the real interesting aspect of this study is that the inflammation of the arthritis was also measured during these different uh, angles of perception. And the actual physical inflammation, the swelling, was reduced when the subjects looked at their arthritic arms through the reverse end of the binoculars. It's not clear why this is, but it definitely speaks to um, our relationship to our problems. And if we can change our perspective, we may be able to change our experience altogether. Second uh, type of research involves something called the telomere. If you haven't heard of what a telomere is, it is a little structure within our cells that protects the chromosomes within our cells and, and protects our DNA. You could think of it as the cap on a shoelace. So we think of our DNA as the strands of genetic material within our cells and the cap at the end keeps it together. Well, this telomere starts shortening as soon as we're born and they shorten over time and they eventually become damaged and then the DNA starts to unravel, the cell becomes susceptible to disease and it is now the strongest predictor of age-related diseases and lifespan. And you can have your telomeres measured at, uh, in certain laboratories by taking a sample of cheek cells. But there has been interesting research into why these telomeres shorten at different rates. And as expected, stress and trauma definitely have an effect. But in a very comprehensive study um, that brought together immunology and anthropology and psychology and molecular biology, researchers studied a large group of mothers, mothers who were caring for chronically ill children. And they divided them into two groups. So the, there was a group of mothers caring for chronically ill children, and there was a demographically matched group of mothers caring for healthy children. And they did a comprehensive study that involved measuring the telomeres. And it was expected that the telomeres of the mothers caring for chronically ill children would be much shorter. But what they found was that there wasn't a noticeable difference between the two. So they took the group of mothers caring for chronically ill children and they divided them into two groups with the data to try to make some sense of this. 
and they separated the data using information from the psychological assessments and they separated the data according to perceived stress. So in column A was mothers who thought that their situation was very stressful and column B was the data from mothers who did not think caring for their chronically ill child was stressful. And in that separation, they found a significant difference in the length of the telomeres of the mothers. And they found that it translated to the equivalent of aging 10 years. However, the telomere does not shorten, um, does not only shorten, it can actually grow back. And new studies with mindfulness practices and measuring telomeres has found that a telomere can resume its previous length. It wasn't clear how that was possible, but Elizabeth Blackburn, the molecular biologist who discovered the telomere in the 70s, also discovered the, the enzyme, the nucleic protein called telomerase that rebuilds telomeres. And for that, she won a Nobel Prize. So it's found that when you practice mindfulness, some type of mindful breathing or meditation, that you actually increase the production of this enzyme, telomerase. It rebuilds the, the, uh, the cap on the end of our chromosomes and can help us heal, recover, and rebuild our lifespan even. It's still, there's still a lot of mysteries as to why does these, do these mindfulness practices increase telomerase production, but it certainly reveals to us that uh, what happens to us is not the full story. How we respond and also how we interpret our circumstances really play a significant role in our ultimate experience. That's why in Buddhist psychology there is a saying, it's not what happens to you, but what you tell yourself about what happens to you that determines your experience. So I'll speak a little bit more about meditation and neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity, as I described, was the ability of our brain to change. It was thought in the past that the brain could only deteriorate. Once you lose brain cells, that's it. And that's why we've always said it's so important to protect the brain, because once you've lost, lost it, you can't get it back. But we've since learned that the brain can change, and it can continue to change, and is malleable throughout our life. And it changes depending on what we pay attention to and what behaviors we engage in again and again. Neuroplasticity was discovered in a few ways. One was in a MRI study of jugglers. Magnetic resonance imaging revealed that jugglers have larger um, occipital lobes, certain areas of the brain dedicated to uh, vision. So naturally you would think, well, maybe people with more gray matter in this area would be inclined to juggle. But researchers have studied people who have never juggled, measured their, their brains with scans, taught them to juggle, measured again, and they found, sure enough, all the areas involved with detecting visual motion have expanded and developed more matter, more gray matter. This was found also in musicians. 
string musicians, right-handed string musicians, were found to have larger areas in their motor cortex dedicated to controlling the left hand. Because if you're a right-handed string player, your left hand does all the dexterous movement on the fretboard. And when people were examined who never played an instrument and were taught to play an instrument and had to practice sincerely every day for several weeks, they found that that part of the motor cortex expanded and grew. And so that is the foundation of neuroplasticity. There are a few areas that, um, that are changed by practicing mindfulness and meditation. And I will show you where those areas are in the brain. We'll just talk about three briefly. With as little as 20-30 minutes a day, these three areas have been seen to make measurable changes. 20-30 minutes of mindful meditation has a special effect on these three areas. The first is the amygdala. The amygdala is known as the fight-flight center or emotional regulation center, especially the negative emotions like anxiety, anger, fear. And in studies of veterans with PTSD, it's been found that the amygdala is enlarged compared to the amygdala within a norm, so-called normal brain. And in, in medicine, this is known as hypertrophy. But when people practice meditation, MRI studies show that the amygdala gets calmed down. The, the hypertrophy is reduced, so it actually gets smaller, which translates to more emotional control, emotional regulation, and less reactivity of the fight-flight system. So the, the suffering that a, that a patient experiences with anxiety disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder is really the body reacting to the environment as if there is danger. And when there's not danger, and the body is in the fight-flight mode, the person suffers. When there is danger and the fight-flight system is active, the body is functioning exactly as it needs to, to keep us safe and to protect us. So really there is an overactive sense of danger because of it, or in relation to a trauma, and a person can learn to respond differently to the environment through this type of training. So when, when a person is suffering from the the physiological changes of anxiety, there's really a sense of impairment because we know we're not in danger, we know we'd like to be able to do certain things, to, to do our daily activities, but it creates so much anxiety and it creates a dysfunctional relationship between the mind and the body. person feels like, oh no, here goes my butterflies again or my stupid chest keeps getting tight. But really, it's the wisdom of our bodies that is communicating to our, to our minds that it notices something that connects to previous danger. Meditation creates a, a new relationship between our mind and body, one that says, I hear what you're saying, and I'm assessing for danger. There's no danger, so my meditation communicates that we're safe. Deep breathing is a biological code for safety. Our ancestors, fighting for survival, would not breathe deeply and in a relaxed way if they knew there was a tiger lurking. When we breathe deeply, it sends an ancient signal to our bodies that we're safe. So it's not always possible to think our way through our anxiety or think our way out of emotional turmoil, but we can 
meditate and breathe our way through it. Second area is the hippocampus. It's the blue region that wraps around the hemispheres. It's involved in learning and memory, and it communicates with the amygdala for emotional regulation. And that area is strengthened and built up. And the third is the prefrontal cortex, which we mentioned before as the area for higher decision-making, higher thinking, memory. It's the executive center. It takes to about 25, 26 years old to develop, which gives us some insight when parenting, when we're wondering why can't our teen understand that there's consequences or think some of these behaviors through. Well, to some extent, there are physiological obstacles. But on the flip side, as adults, as soon as this part of the brain reaches maturity, then ordinarily it begins to deteriorate. And by the time we're 45, 50, we'll notice it's harder to remember things and figure things out. It requires more effort. So we need to practice just like, to, to preserve it just like children or, or um, adolescents can practice to help them develop it in a positive way. There's another area of the brain, a region. This is the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe where they meet. It's called the temporal parietal junction. It's an area involved with perspective taking. And I, I, as I mentioned before, the brain is very metaphorical, very symbolic. So the areas of our brain involved with moving through space, how many steps do I need to take to get to the door, is the same area of the brain that is involved with thinking about what is life like from your point of view. And when we practice meditation, this part of the area grows more gray matter as well, which is one of the reasons why people feel more connected, more open-hearted, uh, more empathic when they practice mindfulness techniques like meditation or yoga or Tai Chi or Qigong and other, um, other practices that have been taught in cultures all over the world. One minute of a practice like this is enough to activate the relaxation response, the parasympathetic nervous system in the body that soothes the fight-flight changes and helps us to recode, to tell our biology that the environment is safe. I hear you. I know that you notice something that connects to a time when I wasn't safe but it doesn't apply in this circumstance. And in time, we can respond differently to our triggers and we can cultivate resilience even before we need it.